0: Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, episode 11. When are you going to stop counting the episodes? I don't know. I like… I just like the bigger that they get, the happier I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's a meta statement right there. Um, anyway, I, I think that for us right now… I've been waiting for this episode because this is the episode we can finally talk about a show that surprised me in how I reacted to it. Oh my God. You're so excited to talk about this. You jumped right in. Well… There's no preamble. There's no bra talk. No, there isn't because, again, and I think you are the person who can probably attest to it the most, I started watching the show uh, before you, you know, part of… The perk of of doing what we do is we get screeners and advanced copies of things. So a few weeks ago, uh, I received an advanced screener for Big Little Lies.
1: Let's pause the story here. Remember those books that you had as a kid where it would be like, when you hear the ding, ding, turn the page. Now we're going to turn the page and talk about you and TV and how bloody annoying you are about (laughs) TV. This is what happens somebody tells Elaine she should watch the show. And she's like, uh, I have to watch all of The Wire. Why? Because so-and-so who's kind of cool said I should. Okay, well, do you like it? No, not really. Okay, you're going to really like this show. You really should watch Veronica Mars. You really should watch this. How about Gilmore? Maybe you should watch this other… Ah, uh, Duenna. No, I don't want to. I don't want Fast forward… Oh, anywhere from six months to three years, depending on what's happened in your life and how (laughs) trapped you are and how much you need entertainment. And all of a sudden, the worm turns and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's amazing. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? So now, ding, turn the page. We'll go back and talk about how, yes, this was a show that you saw first. Yes. But before we get there, see, I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's based on a book that I think you told me to read, to give you full credit.
0: Yeah, it's a book by Leanne Moriarty. How do you… Is that Irish? Like, what is Moriarty that? is Irish, yes. Right, okay. Um, called Big Little Lies. And Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon acquired the rights to develop it together. I believe at first they wanted it to be a movie. Then it ended up being a TV show. Of course, it's Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon… So they were able to get it pretty quickly into TV after they changed, after they changed the direction from film to TV. The book was published in 2014,
1: uh, written by Leanne Moriarty, who is, the name is Irish, but she's actually Australian. Uh, And it was uh, not her first book, I don't think. Her first book was called Three Wishes. uh, And, you know, so it was published in 2014. To get it on screen by 2017, yeah, that's pretty fast. It's
0: not, it's not slow. It's not slow. And we're talking to get it on screen. So it's already gone through a process of film first, then they changed it, then they went into development for script for TV, HBO, and anyway. Big Little Lies premieres this month. We had advanced screeners. I had advanced screeners. I was like, okay, I read the book. The book was really engrossing. I've written about it repeatedly, so when the screeners came in, I was like, yep, I'm not holding on this. I am going to take a look. I'm 10 minutes through the first episode, and I am texting you, and I'm like, holy fucking shit, Duanna. And let's be clear, I don't do this often with TV. No, no, rarely. I've done it with you for songs, for books… I've done it with you for, I don't know, whatever, a food I've eaten. People, interviews, we, you know, we comment. An article. Forth, an article all the time, a moment, a tweet, a, yes. a thing. I rarely, if ever, probably never, let's say never, I never do this for a TV show.
1: You said something so interesting once years ago. You uh, were fond of pointing out to people that you like Nurse Jackie, but when they said, well, why don't you talk about it? Why don't you write about it? Whatever. You said, no, it's just for me. It's just for me. It's not to
0: share. I don't talk about Nurse Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I
1: still don't talk about Nurse Jackie. That's another conversation (laughs) for another time. But this show you wanted to talk about.
0: Oh my God. And I think that part of the reason I really wanted to talk to you and then later on we brought in our friend Lorella onto the conversation is because, well, I'm not a mom. And a lot of these experiences and scenes and snapshots that are depicted first in the book and then on the show really brilliantly are what I hear from moms about how some parts of mom culture can be. The school run, the politics. And this was like, holy… Like, this was… I I was… Anyway, you start talking because I am verklempt about this show. You're losing your words. So if you are tuning out because you heard the words schools
1: and moms and so forth, uh, I should back up and say that the book, uh, which was a bestseller, I could go and find exactly which kinds of bestsellers, but I'm sure it was all of them, every publication that you can think of. Uh, But the book is a… it's kind of a murder mystery… Uh, told through the eyes of various parents at a public school. Uh, One of the Mm -hmm. small things that the show changed is the location. It is not set in Australia as the book is. It's set in the US. Other than that… In Monterey, California. How much did you know about Monterey, California before you watched the show?
0: Nothing, but now I feel like we all have to make a pilgrimage to Monterey. It's
1: beautiful. The show
0: is beautiful,
1: and it is engaging. And more importantly, it's really fun. Even though it is a murder mystery, it has a tone that can be described only as what?
0: Uh, Jolly? Yes. it's. There are some macabre-like items. Sorry. There are some dark things that are dealt with on the show. There's some shit to dig up. There is, like, I mean, the contrived derivative way of explaining this is you have to peel back the layers of perfection and underneath is rotting shit. Um, Oh, sure, but that's everything. (laughs) But, I mean, under the surface of Monterey, blonde, California, sun-kissed, perfection-rich people. It is fascinating. And typically, no, I'm not interested in mom shit, but these are universal themes of women, competition… Um, competition in terms of how you parent? Yeah, let's be real here. This is a show and was a book
1: about women who happen to be mothers. It's not about mothers. Uh, And in fact, the book and the show kind of deal with That label and what that means. And if you're getting annoyed with the ways that we're talking in euphemisms, this is not a show that will be ruined if you read the book first. And the book is a quick, delicious read. Go and pick it up.
0: This is a show and a book about girl shit.
1: But speaking of, I feel like we are still dancing around the real story here. I think we're still dancing around the reason that you were texting me at 3 a.m., like a needy girlfriend. Two words. One person. Reese Witherspoon.
0: My God, Duanna.
1: Tell me how you feel about Reese Witherspoon or how you felt up to,
0: up to say, you know, two weeks ago or whenever you started watching this show. Not my favorite person. I mean, Reese Witherspoon just isn't my jam. Then there was like the police incident, the DUI incident, Reese Witherspoon's entitlement, blah, blah, blah. You all know, you read the blog. But I will tell you this. This is Reese Witherspoon's most engaging, outstanding performance. I cannot stop watching Reese Witherspoon. I'm already in a state of anxiety. So to be honest, we got four episodes as screeners. I can't bring myself to watch episode four because it's the last one I have, which is a thing that I do that Duanna, like, doesn't understand. It where drives I, me nuts. I can't go to the end of something when I know that I don't have the next. Like, I always have to leave something to savor. Yeah, but you leave series that have been finished for years. You just leave them dangling with three episodes to go. It's just a weird thing. I never want things to end. Anyway, I have- She bought- also peeks at the back of books. There, I said it. I, I've watched three episodes, I have access to four, and I love watching, I cannot take my eyes off Witherspoon, and I texted you, and I said, because you are my barometer, you're my coach, you're my TV mentor, and I texted you, and I was like, please, watch it right now, Joanna, watch it right now, I need you to watch it now, because I need you to tell me if I'm wrong, if for some reason my antenna is wonky today, I have a headache, I don't know. And you watched it and you were like, God damn, Reese Witherspoon.
1: Yeah. What I said, uh, which is my favorite kind of hyperbole, which is that it isn't. This is the role Reese Witherspoon was born to play. She plays a woman named Madeline. And there is a line in the book that I love. And it talks about Madeline's daughter, who I believe is named Chloe. And it says, Chloe was walking the edge between obnoxious and adorable all the time. Actually, so was Madeline. And it's such a succinct description of a character. And it's such a clear embodiment that Reese Witherspoon, the actor, has taken and inhabited and lived in. And there are lots of elements that are really close to who she is as a person. There are lots of imitates of art, art imitating real life. And she's not the only reason that it's good. Her co-stars around her are excellent. The whole show is really entertaining. But again, when we talk about the work of the work, think about reading a book and thinking to yourself, this is for me. I can make this person, this character, light up like nobody else can do. I have to do this. This is why she got the book. This is why she optioned it. Because
0: yes. this is the role she was born to play. There's another line that you quoted from the book that describes Madeline, and the line is, uh, Madeline is never happier than when… Right? Re- y- correct me if I'm wrong. Madeline is never happier than when she's basically fighting with somebody,
1: I'm right? not sure if I quoted that from the book or if that is a line that is included in the pilot episode that is
0: a, that is a quote from the book, but… Either way. Either way, the character that Reese Witherspoon plays is a character who thrives on drama, who thrives on conflict. And yet you don't dislike her. You're eager to watch her. You And she is, this character that she plays is constantly getting into petty fucking girl shit and major girl shit. Um, she has enemies and she has friends to whom and for whom she is there and ride or die and super loyal. And she is, there's never been a time where I've watched Reese Witherspoon in a performance and I felt closer to her. Wow. That's that I big could, talk. I could touch her that I know who you are. Like you are playing somebody I recognize and I have seen in my real life. You want to be friends with her, don't you? I want to be friends with the Reese Witherspoon on this show. It is, and I said to you, it is um, a combination and a culmination of Tracy Flick, Elle Woods, and June Carter Cash. All of those performances, she has, I guess, these were the stepping stones and the building blocks to creating Madeline.
1: And in case you are still thinking, well, this is a Reese Witherspoon vehicle and who cares. Here is a partial list of the people she mixes it up with in the show. Uh, Nicole Kidman. Uh, Shailene Woodley, who has annoyed me on the regular, did not annoy me here. Adam Scott. Excellent. Laura Dern. Amazing. Uh, the hot dad from Once and Again. Where are my people at?
0: James. No, no. Oh, the hot dad. Okay, right. That's that other Jeffrey guy. Jeffrey Nordling. Right. Uh who else we got? And Ann Hesh's um Anne Hesh's husband or uh partner. Sure. James Tupper. Oh sure. Yeah. As well as Zoe Kravitz. And um, Alexander Skarsgard. Ale- right, Alexander Skarsgard. It is
1: wall-to-wall, fascinating people. It's so exciting to watch, and it's yeah, it's gonna give you a hard-on for Monterey.
0: What's interesting to me even as we're talking about the show and this came up so organically, is even, as we said, Reese Witherspoon's character is Madeline. You will notice that the way I pronounce Madeline and the way Duanna pronounces Madeline is different. That shows up on the show too. And it's actually fascinating to me. I just picked up on it. You pronounce Madeline the way Renata, Laura Dern's character, pronounces it.
1: I feel as though she has introduced herself as Madeline a couple of times, like maybe when I say she, I mean Reese as Madeline. Uh, I feel like you know Adam Scott maybe says Madeline. Uh, that's really interesting. I'll have to have a yeah. We'll have to have a, a tally.
0: Just heads up when you guys watch the show, and we really, really recommend you watch the show. And we really, really recommend you watch the show. My prediction. And I think Duanna would agree that once this airs, everybody's going to be talking about it.
1: Yeah. There's I think so
0: much to mine. I only think there are people who maybe don't know what it
1: is or who, you know, falsely think that the book was sort of chick lit, which is a really uh, weird label for the kind of storytelling that this is. And listen, if you hate all these people, come for the Shailene Woodley who is almost unrecognizable. This is the first time I've gone, oh, I see why people think she's an actor. I get why she did a movie with George Clooney.
0: I'm shocked. It's amazing. It is amazing. And the collection of actors, especially the actresses on this show, is fascinating to us when you talk about the levels. I mean, for lack of a better way to describe it, the hierarchy of how certain actors are ranked. Like Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman, we can agree are on the top level. What do you mean on
1: the top level? What are we talking about On the top level,
0: meaning on prestige, both of them are Oscar winners. Sure, sure. Both of them are Best Actress Oscar winners. Sure. Both of them carry a clout. Um, And yet, and I don't want to give too much away and we shouldn't hear, but watching them scene for scene… Play off each other and in their own individual areas, Reese Witherspoon is out acting Nicole Kidman. Exponentially. And
1: that's not to say that Nicole Kidman's not good. She plays a character named Celeste, and Nicole Kidman is a good Celeste. If you read the book and you picture her, that makes sense. You can picture Nicole Kidman as Celeste, but it's not the kind of visceral connection. That makes you, I assume, call your manager and your business partner at 3 a.m. I assume this is what happened at Reese's house, that she slammed the books, got on the phone and was like, no, pick up the phone. No, pick it up. (laughs) I'm buying this book today. Today for me. Today. I don't care who plays Celeste, Nicole Kidman, but I'm playing Madeline. I think it must have been a really almost divine intervention to make her go, I need to buy this property so that I can play this part.
0: And I think that you're right, and she's playing the part in a way with the skill that the greatest actors… Wow, I just said the greatest actors, so I won't recant. Guys, she won't even look me in the eye right now. (laughs) (laughs) That the greatest actors have, and that is not only is she extraordinary, Reese Witherspoon, in this role, but she makes everyone around her better. Like, you can see without it being too, I can hear the gears. But you can see people playing opposite her in certain scenes rising to her level. Like they are, I can imagine that people went back to their trailers and were like, fucking Reese is bringing it. I need to read through my lines again. I need to fucking analyze uh, how I decided to deliver this line and do this face and whatever, because she is coming like… At 150%, she is bringing it 150 every single moment. And you can see everybody else elevating. I want people
1: to say that about me. She's bringing it every single moment. I am going to ruin your friend Lainey's week. I know that you will now think of that when you're working hard. You'll think, I want to work as hard as Reese Witherspoon did.
0: Christ. Uh.
1: <laughs> you're welcome.
0: yeah. So, everybody…
1: Yeah, I know we're getting inside baseball. I think we're going to come back to this. I think there are going to be conversations that will come up about women and work and other kinds of conversations that will come up as this show is on the air. So, I cannot wait to hear what you think. Uh,
0: The show starts in a week. Um, Reese Witherspoon, Big Little Lies, this is the show, I promise you, I think, this is the show we're going to be talking about all season, at least until Game of Thrones starts. Um, Reese Witherspoon, though, we've been talking about her, and Reese Witherspoon's rise, I don't think anybody would debate me on this, was via rom-coms.
1: Well, yeah, it was via movies, you know. Um, One of the things, there was a Vulture article, they've been focusing on rom-coms uh, during February, during the month of love, I suppose, uh, and... One of their articles is why A-list actresses don't make romantic comedies anymore. And their A-list actresses that they focus on are Emma Stone and Jennifer Lawrence with a side of uh, Margot Robbie, and I think Kristen Stewart gets a mention here as well, that they don't make rom-coms. And people like Reese Witherspoon, uh, Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan… Sandra Bullock. …came up through rom-coms, Absolutely. The question, I think, is whether they were just movies at that time. You know, when Julia Roberts was ascending in her career, sure, Pretty Woman is a romantic comedy, uh, but it was also just a movie. It did extremely well at the box office because that's what was on offer
0: at the time. You're right. Like, was When Harry Met Sally, because a person missing from the list that you just gave… Is Meg Ryan. And
1: I should say she is included in the… Yes, uh, Vulture article. That's right.
0: So when, um, when when Harry Met Sally came out, was it labeled a rom-com? And then subsequently, Sleepless and uh, uh, what? You've got mail? Yeah, sure. And One
1: Fine Day, even though it's not a Meg Ryan movie. I love
0: One Fine Day. You
1: just like it because George Clooney and probably <laughs> Mae Whitman. <laughs>
0: I know. I think I love it. I love Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay, fair enough. I think that's what it might be. Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, as you said, were they just movies back in the 80s and 90s? And now, in the age of the internet and labeling, have we just called it rom-coms?
1: Well, I feel like rom-coms is, let's be honest, it's… it, it implies derision, Right. To say a rom-com is the kind of movie that you're doing means it's not serious, it's not funny, it's not great. I was sort of reading this article which argues that big actresses now choose dramas instead uh, and that the people who do rom-coms are smaller actresses or actresses of a different tier. And I was sort of thinking like, oh, no, because because what about… and the movie that came to mind was The Devil Wears Prada. Which, of course, is a rom-com, but it's a romance between Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep. Yes. And it's about work. Uh, I did not plan that little cliche, I promise you. But those big studio movies starring women, about women, used to be kind of about more. You know, they used to be... Pretty Woman is absolutely a romantic comedy, and it's a fairy tale, And, you know, it was not supposed to end that way and she rescues him right back and it's all kind of gross. But at the same time, it's also about Vivian's growth as a person more than just, you know, being saved by the rich guy who's going to buy her some dresses and some oysters. Uh, We've actually almost changed the type of movie that is about a certain type of successful woman.
0: Maybe? Yeah, I… I totally get that vibe, and I think that what Vulture was getting at, I mean, to be fair, and just to get clear on this, Vulture, a couple weeks ago, um, through that week, was publishing a series of articles about rom-coms. And the first in that series was, is the rom-com dead? And their position was, it's not necessarily dead, but it has morphed, again, to your point, Joanna, into something more. Whether or not it's a rom-com between two women whether or not the romantic uh, storyline is between a woman and her job, does it go back a little to the nine-to-five working girl days? Nine-to-five, those were three women who were, hey, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton, who were basically working together, but the love story was between the three of them.
1: A few weeks ago at the SAG Awards, when Lily Tomlin got a Lifetime Achievement Award, they played a clip of that movie. And I think everybody simultaneously in the theater and out of it was delighted. Like, oh, remember
0: that? Oh, yeah. Let's watch that again. And so Vulture then said, and their position was, the rom-com as we saw from, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, the Love Actuallys, you know, those movies that were the same, starring Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman and Justin Timberlake and somebody else, that has moved aside in favor, perhaps, of a different kind of rom-com. They're still there, but Bridesmaids is essentially is a rom-com, but the love, of, but the love story is really between Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph. That's right. Uh, well, this is
1: also a budgetary uh, story, which is not the most sexy thing to talk about when we're talking about romantic comedies. But these kinds of movies, a big, fancy movie about a woman who we like, who we want to watch, have adventures, these kinds of movies were kind of mid-budget movies. And what has happened in the meantime for movies is that they have changed into being either extremely expensive epics, uh, your Harry Potters, your Lords of the Rings… You're, I don't know, Suicide Squad? Suicide Squad shut down a street in Toronto every second night in the summertime, (laughs) so I assume. And on the other hand, really, really small budget movies. You know, some of the movies that get uh, invoked as sort of modern romantic comedies include uh, Obvious Child is one that comes up and Cal Penn has a new movie at Sundance, The Big Sick. And those are really, really small budget movies. So one of the things that happened to the romantic comedy is they were sort of in the middle budget-wise and got squeezed out uh, to send more money kind of to the top
0: and the bottom. To the tent poles and the indie, and they're yes. left a gap. And again, in this Vulture piece, the position is that in that gap, it was filled with smaller compared to before movies and television. As you mentioned, Exactly, Duanna is saluting me, but Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is, um, according to Vulture, a rom-com. It's just modernized and it's no longer what we saw before in the Katherine Heigl version of what rom-coms look like in 27 Dresses, but a more nuanced representation of what it is like to be looking for love and breaking out of love, breaking up, struggling with love.
1: Sure, absolutely. And struggling with everything else at the same time. You know, and as you've heard me rant before and as I will again… TV is actually a more exciting place to explore some of those things. If you do a show, I was about to say 22 episodes. Nobody gets 22 episodes anymore. Maybe This Is Us. Hi, This Is Us. You're doing very well. Even Shonda's too tired, man. She's like, give us 13. (laughs) We're good. They took a break this year on Scandal. They're fine. But the point is, if you have 13 hours or even 10 or 8 to explore a story, you get more time than a 90-minute movie in which you have to have Julia Roberts married by the end. You know, it is a more exciting and more in-depth enterprise in a way that's not to devalue a romantic comedy because I think that there's a lot of, a lot of people have a lot of really wonderful memories of romantic comedies as being just movies that they loved. As I say, like, you know, movies that were not shameful movies or movies that, no, you shouldn't watch. But, you know, people always had sliding doors in their dorm rooms. That was one of those movies that people had. Shakespeare and Love. God, what I'm learning here is your girl Gwyneth killed the rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or Love and Basketball. Remember that? Yeah. Like, that was a rom-com.
0: It was so exciting. Now, you, you, as you're talking and I'm thinking about my past and my personal affection for rom-coms. I'm not going to lie. Like on a weekend, if there's a rom-com of the past on, um, I I will not change the channel. The sweetest thing. (laughs) Terrible movie. (laughs) (laughs) Cameron Diaz, Christina Applegate. It's a terrible, Selma Blair. It's not a great movie. Oh yeah, dude, that's a
1: terrible movie.
0: But uh, for some reason I can't turn it off. But here's to go to, you know, to get into a better one. While You Were Sleeping, Sandra Bullock. I love that movie. And I'm trying to think through this to defend it. And one of the reasons I love that movie is because, first of all, she, the story is about her. And the story is about, she's, you know, she takes the token at the subway station. And she has a fantasy about who the right guy is and who she wants. And then he gets hit by a train or he passes out or whatever and she lies and pretends to be somebody else in order to be with him and in that process rediscovers herself and all the things that she needs to learn and open up about until she can actually open herself up to real love, who is not that guy, but who ends up being Bill Pullman, his brother. Anyway, (laughs) I… This has
1: been summarizing a movie with Elaine Louis.
0: I love that movie. Now… Am I setting us back for still having affection for that movie?
1: No, I don't think it's anything about setting anybody back. I think one of the things that happened by necessity was that when these sort of big-budget romantic comedies went away, the story started getting more interesting. Right. We know how to see this story in the big sense. But if you can't afford to have these two people falling back in love at the top of the Empire State Building… What do you do? Well, you have Obvious Child, which is the first romantic comedy about an abortion. Or, you know, you make Trainwreck, which is sort of, as they point out in Vulture, has Amy Schumer as the conflict, uh, a commitment avoidant kind of schlub instead of Seth Rogen. You know, Uh, that even reminds me of that Seth Rogen movie, The Road Trip, uh, which I don't think was lacking in budget, but which starred Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand. It was like a rom-com with his mom. So the benefit here is that the stories are getting more creative and more exciting. And to me, one of the all-time romantic comedies is Kissing Jessica Stein. Yeah. Which is, if you haven't seen it, if it passed your radar, is just so delightful and charming and New York-y and unusual. And I think holds up. Every movie has some little markers, but I think you would definitely still be as charmed and pleased if you haven't seen it.
0: And I guess another way on top of all the things that you're saying that rom-coms are evolving and changing and becoming fuller is that some rom-coms are being reimagined with different characters and specifically characters of a different culture. And I'm talking about, about last night, which was remade, um, for, you know, with a black cast. And Kevin Hart was in it, Michael Ealy, who is so gorgeous, Joy Bryant, so it was Michael Ealy playing the Rob Lowe part and Joy Bryant playing the Demi Moore part. And it was a reimagining of the 80s, Brat Pack era about last night, except with a black cast. And I've watched that movie like, Five times. I even made Yasik watch parts of the movie with me. It was so funny and it was, I really liked it. It was formulaic, but it felt fresh to me because we were watching people fall in love who we don't typically watch fall in love on screen. And that is to say they weren't white. Um, and that was exciting. And that was a point that was noted in this vulture piece that, the rom-com is evolving in different ways, and one of the best ways is this recasting of, listen, if you're going to have a formula with a rom-com and um, you're going to do that anyway, then a one way to make it different is to give us characters and give us people whose literal skin is not what we've seen.
1: Okay, so I'm going to... Here we go. Let's make us a rom-com right now. It's uh, We're going to... Uh Nancy Myers is gonna direct it. I'm gonna call it uh uh oh I don't know, the guest house. And it's about these two characters and uh he's a what is he, a sports writer? Sure he is. Okay. And she's a marketing executive and their parents have gotten married uh late in life. You know, they're they're She's 27, and he's 30,
0: and their parents are getting married, and that's so exciting. Okay. So you've got a little 10 things I hate about your, no, no, um, how to fall in love, how to break up or lose a guy in 10 days. Oh, yeah? Sure. That's a little bit of that, because a sports writer, marketing whatever. Oh, yeah, That's, sure. Okay, Okay, good. so you've got a little bit of how to lose a guy in 10 days. Right. And a little bit of, what, it's complicated? I guess it's complicated. Yeah. Sure. Okay, um, got it. Know,
1: uh, maybe some flowers in the attic. Okay. I'm joking. So the parents are getting married, and so after the wedding, each of the parents says, okay, bye, we're off to Santorini. Um, can you check on the guest house, please? And, you know, they both check on the guest house, and... Uh, oh, but he's there, but he's actually running game on two girls because he's a bit of a cad. Uh-huh. Uh, or maybe a girl and a guy, okay. who knows, whatever. And she walks in on that and sort of he, she has to help him keep his secrets about who's at the guest house. And meanwhile,
0: he's helping her to keep her secrets that she's lost her job. You are bringing in so many, like now you're the lake house, Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves. Right. And um, past ex-girlfriends, McCona- McConaughey... Oh, sure. Jennifer Garner. I can't remember the exact title, but it's oh, The Ghost, Ghost of, of Ex-Girlfriend's Past. Good, there. good. All right. More, them. more yeah. of them, more yeah. of Yeah, you're piling um, on now.
1: There's a there's a wacky best friend on her half. On her half, There's a, you know, there's a Navishy best friend on his half, maybe who's like walking around saying, oh, she's never going to leave him. Uh, we miss you, Carrie Fisher. Uh, so who are we casting is what I'm asking. And of course they fall in love in the end. Okay. And so, you know, they're sort of step-siblings and they fall in love in the okay,
0: end. Okay, okay, okay. So, what, are we casting the parents first or what the couple? Got, yeah, you hit me. Okay, so, um, we've got, I'm going to say, uh, uh, Constance Wu. Yeah, you, uh, how, wait a minute, for who? For the, like, the, the child, one of the children. Constance Wu? How old is Constance Wu? 30-something? <gasps> no? S- I guess so. Sure. Okay, sure. Great. Okay. So Constance Wu. Yeah. You down? Yep. Okay. Constance Wu. Now your turn. Your turn. Oh, my turn. Okay. Yeah. Like who's. So co- Constance Wu was born 1982. That makes her 34 years old. My
1: mind is blown. <laughs> um, okay. So Constance Wu starring opposite. Oh, gosh. Uh, Donald Glover.
0: Oh, yes. Okay. Let me see. Donald Glover. Um, Donald Glover. So, is it Donald Glover's dad who marries Constance's mom, or is it Donald's mom who marries Constance's dad? I want to say Donald's mom. Okay, Donald's mom. Donald is 33 years old this year, so we've got Constance, 34, Donald, 33, perfect. Donald's mom marries Constance's dad. So, Donald's mom is…
1: Do you know who showed up on TV the other week and I was really excited? Who? Robin Givens.
0: <gasps> Donald's Mom is Robin Givens. Okay, let's do…
1: I saw Robin Givens on Riverdale, which is another addiction you're about to have, if you haven't already, by the way.
0: Robin Givens, age 52. So 52 minus 33 is… Mm, 19. 19. I mm-hmm. don't
1: mean to, you know, who knows what Robin okay. Givens was up to at 19. Yeah, okay. A
0: stretch. stretch. Um, and then Constance's dad. Yes. Now we run into a roadblock. <laughs> we need an Asian actor in his 50s.
1: Or a reason why Constance Wu's dad is played by Aziz
0: Ansari's dad. I don't know. Um, yeah. This is the game, right? This is the game. This is what, like, you know, to me, I feel like this is a fun exercise and um, a meaningful exercise because, Duanna, you are a screenwriter. Sure. It is, this is what you do. But if I'm being honest, if we were having
1: this discussion in a real way in a studio, they would stop you at every turn and say, can that person open a movie? Meaning, are people going to come and see this movie because the names are over the billboards?
0: Are people going to come and see a movie in which Donald Glover falls in love with Constance Wu is what you're saying? Yes, or or Constance Wu falls in love with Donald Glover. Sure.
1: Or are there other people? You know, they marketed uh, The Intern uh, with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway, both white and very generic stars in a way, but they're not falling in love with each other. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, they were the two stars of the movie, but they were not the romantic leads. Uh, another example of that is Up in the Air, right, where it was George Clooney and this newcomer. Anna Kendrick. Yeah. But they were not romantic leads.
0: Yes. So you're saying that the roadblock would have happened a long time ago. That's yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. And yet I think that what we're saying is that the rom com needs to be reimagined in that way. We just threw in how many fucking eight rom-coms that everybody knows, mashed them all together. Essentially, that formula, we just took the formula and, like, created a new formula. But, like, so all these ideas, there are no, like, people say, I can't remember who said that there are no new ideas in terms of narrative. It's always like love, hate, betrayal, disappointment, whatever. Those are all going to be recycled. It's how you imagine them and what they look like. Uh And this is what we're talking about in terms of the new iteration of the rom-com.
1: And why we can't see it. And the answer to that, by the way, is indie films. This is why people are making tiny little movies about tiny little stories that otherwise would not get to be seen. This is also why people go to TV where… You know, the stories that can't be told 40 feet high sometimes are happily told on HBO and FX and all the other places we love to go. So, yeah, if you want to see yourself in a rom-com, if you have a story that is not being told, these are the
0: avenues where you can look and where you can make your own. Well, you just mentioned see yourself in a Mm rom-com. So when you threw at me, hey, let's cast this… Who did I say? Constance Wu. Absolutely. And this is not, you know, a, this was a, the most spontaneous conversation. We never planned this. We didn't come sit here tonight thinking we were going to write a rom-com and cast it. But my immediate reaction was Constance Wu because I was like, who am I going to be? Right? I mean, if I'm being really honest,
1: my immediate reaction was surprise. Not because you chose Constance Wu who is not somebody who's been in rom-coms before, but because she plays a mom. I thought, oh, is she really young enough for a a romantic comedy? That's my terrible bias, Uh, especially because we started this conversation with one of my very favorite romantic comedies, When Harry Met Sally, where the main characters do not get down to it until they're 36. It's a whole thing. We know exactly how old they are at each point. Um, So that's my own terrible bias.
0: So slap me on the wrist. This was a fun exercise, and I think that, like, the reason why I I really felt engaged and excited and, I don't know, buzzy about this conversation is because I want us to play these games. Like, these are the games that we should all be playing creatively. If you are a creative out there, and this is what your job is, is to imagine, then… That is what Hollywood needs more of. Yeah, and prove that there's an audience who wants to see
1: these things. And that's how we get ever closer.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. Well, this is a hard pivot. I have no segue into the next, <laughs> into the next one, but there was a story that came up a couple of weeks ago that both of us were a little bit obsessed with. And, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, I saw it on TMZ. You saw it elsewhere. Sure. I sent you the TMZ link, but Mm. it's about Rob Lowe. Well, there's our connection. Rob Lowe about last night. There Ah, you go. That's where I thought you were going (laughs) ten minutes ago. (laughs) So, Rob Lowe was in lots of romantic comedies in the 80s and 90s. Anyway, Rob Lowe apparently… This, the, the link that I saw on TMZ was, Rob Lowe, I'm looking for an assistant who can lift 25 pounds and assumes nothing, and then there's an itemization of what the job description is. So, shall I read? Please. Okay. Here's the job description on a website targeting personal assistants. Never assume anything. Ensure the client, Rob, is fed and has coffee throughout the day. Schedule haircuts every episode for the client. Ensure that the client has a dinner plan if arriving home later than 8 p.m. in the evening. Make sure you let estate state staff know if the client wants a jacuzzi turned on or a massage ordered for his arrival. Willing to travel on location as requested and serve as the client's body man. Hmm. Able to lift up to 25 pounds as required to support the client. Um, there are more requirements. But this is at least what TMZ uh, had put, put out. I sent it to you and I was like, um, when we're talking about work in Hollywood, we have to fucking talk about this kind of work.
1: Absolutely. The PA, the personal assistant. Uh, the one thing I think we do need to talk about is that this job listing… So this was a job listing that was posted on a site that looks for personal assistance to high-profile people and uh, whether or not it is actually Rob Lowe's ad. He's sort of half denied and half kind of confirmed, and we'll come back to that. Uh, most importantly, it, it is a legitimate ad that somebody's looking for, and uh, the personal assistant salary is was offered at 70 grand, uh, possibly plus benefits. It was definitely 70 grand was on the table. So, you know, as much as we hear about personal assistants as being kind of... Uh, You see them as sort of people who get coffee and like schlubbing around L.A. and flip-flops and whatnot. This is a career. This is something that people do for a career, often for a lifetime or certainly a substantial period of time. Uh, And it can be a full and engrossing career. And I want to laugh because I don't know what the deal is with supporting 25 pounds. It's a really (laughs) arbitrary amount of weight to lift. Uh, But… You know, these all seem like fairly typical personal assistant demands. There are no demands in here that say things like ensure nobody looks into the pupils of your boss (laughs) or, you know, drain the blood of virgins to rub onto your boss's face. Uh, In fact, it seems
0: kind of mundane. So were you surprised? I was not surprised. Um, And I wonder, though, if I wasn't surprised just because… We've been in this industry for, I don't know, over a decade. We've worked with PAs. Sometimes in our line of work, we communicate with the PAs to arrange interviews, to arrange whatever. Um, and so, no, it didn't surprise me, but I feel like this article generated a lot of buzz. Because it did. Uh-huh. It went around. People, Several people sent it into Laney Gossip to maybe suggest it as an item for an article. Because other people who aren't immersed in the industry and who still see Hollywood at an arm's length and have certain illusions were surprised.
1: Right. And I think if you really talk about it… So there was a great and uh, underappreciated series called Doll and M uh, that may, I believe, be getting another season. Uh, I'll come back to that and let you know. Uh, But it is the fictionalized story of Emily Mortimer and her real-life best friend who comes to L.A. to be her personal assistant. And they're all like, it's fine. It won't violate our friendship at all. It'll be the best. And we hear about this all the time, right? Best friends as personal assistants. My cousin is my personal assistant. My best friend is my personal assistant. Because your assistant is always, always, always by your side. I would say that a typical assistant day involves showing up with coffee, uh, picking up whatever dog food or whatever might be required on the way to the job of the day, riding in the car, keeping you amused, doing a lot of what we do along the lines of, did you read this? Did you see this? (laughs) Gossiping, in other words. A lot of gossiping. Uh, You know, holding the phone, holding the coffee, no, I can't get her right now, no, I'm sorry, she's busy right now. Sure, making sure that the haircuts are booked so that the hair is exactly three quarters of an inch away from the marker that it was last week on last week's episode. Absolutely. All of these things are really quite typical. And what kills me and the reason that I wanted to bring up the salary is because the personal and the professional are so enmeshed. You are in that person's life and world and also at their place of work. It is so mixed together and so deliciously so that how can it not get messy? How can it not get weird? It's a weird job. If you've been a personal assistant, please create a burner account and write to (laughs) us and tell tell us all about it. You do not have to give your name. You probably have to give some juicy details that we will then keep to ourselves. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of people with a lot of stories.
0: But then that reminds me, you for a while a few years ago were obsessed with this website. It was an anonymous website, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? And it was… It wasn't necessarily a personal assistant, it was like a production assistant, right? Yeah, sure. Hollywood assistants, things people say to Hollywood assistants,
1: things people say to uh, female directors, all kinds of things, yeah. And
0: what was that website called? Do you remember? I don't… Okay. I'm sure it's still out there. And… I believe I read something, or maybe you told me, that that person got a development deal or… Oh, I have no doubt, yes. Um, The Secret
1: Hollywood Assistant, and I think, uh, yeah, possibly, absolutely, I have no doubt. All of those blogs that sort of spill the insider story of what is really happening behind the scenes can be be very delicious and very exciting because it is both so creepy and crazy and ridiculous along the lines of guess how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of dresses are lying on the floor right now. <laughs> and so utterly, utterly boring, you know? Yeah. I, I'm sure that if it's a day of uh, ADR, which is after dialogue recording, which is retaping lines uh, that have been set on set, that's a boring day for a personal assistant. That is somebody developing very bad posture as they slump in a chair in a recording studio. And check their Twitter for hours and hours on end. So it's an interesting job. I kind of wondered, though, as we watched Rob Lowe kind of go on Jimmy Kimmel and uh, react to this, and oh yes, no, that wasn't me. Oh, maybe it was me. Oh, blah, blah. I wondered if it was all a distraction, because Rob Lowe was
0: kind of in trouble earlier in the week. Well, yeah, and earlier that week, or around the same time, at least. Um, You know, he was, I wouldn't say, I mean, embroiled is a, you know, sensational word. But what had happened was there was a little bit of a Twitter shade, back and forth, subtweet kind of thing between him and Bradley Whitford and Richard Schiff. As you would say, it was boy shit. It was boy shit. And of course, those three names, if you connect them together, and we certainly hope you did, um, all lead back to the West Wing. Fucking Sorkin. There. (laughs) There. Rob Lowe was,
1: uh, during the time that the protests were happening, when the presidential Muslim ban came down. Can I say that? Do you know where we are? Anyway. And the airports were all embroiled in protests. Rob Lowe (laughs) tweeted that he saw grandmothers and children having to walk for blocks with their suitcases, assumedly because the cabs were involved in the protests.
0: Right, at LAX.
1: That's right. Uh, To which Bradley Whitford responded, and I am not paraphrasing by much. Uh, (laughs) He wrote, (laughs) profile and courage. Way to speak out, (laughs) profile and (laughs) courage. Guys, I have to remind you that these dudes played best friends on the West Wing for like four years. This is a long, long standing, like that is- That's Josh Lyman and Sam Seaborn. And that, but that's, what is that? (laughs) That's a really long time to hold a grudge and like hit them when they're down. And then, and then Richard Schiff, Toby Ziegler, to those of you who know, retweeted it and was like, gotta back this one up. So as in he retweeted, uh, Bradley Whitford, as in he was backing him up, as in Rob Lowe's a douche. And then there were <laughs> some, like, subsequent tweets to the tune of, like, well, have you been to war-torn areas? I have, with, like, pictures <laughs> to prove it. Yes,
0: yes. so then, yeah, Roblo posted a fucking tweet of himself with refugees. Like, Which oh, is not uh, ever the thing to do. No. Um, and then, of course, many of you did email us, and you picked up on it, and you were like, Uh, what's going on here? But, of course, if you are a West Wing follower and you remember the show at that time, Rob Lowe initially thought that the West Wing was centered around his character, Sam Seaborn. And it's debatable, but in his version of the story, Sam Seaborn was the center of the show. The show started shooting, these other actors started bringing their best game to the show, and you, you comment on this, Duanna, and then in the writer's room, what happens, right, is that you're like, well, shit, like, I, I love writing CJ, uh, oh my god, like, Joshua Lyman is jumping off the page. Oh my God, whatever's going on with Josh and Donna is so great. We got to follow this.
1: Yeah, and I can't speak to whether or not that cut off the story for Sam Seaborn. What is true and very well known is that Martin Sheen as the president was not supposed to be in every episode. He was supposed to be kind of a figurehead character who came in from time to time uh, and having him in every episode certainly changed the shape of a lot of things. Uh, and what is relatively undisputed, if not documented, uh, is that some people, Roblo, Sam Seaborn, uh, were unhappy with the distribution of storyline and kind of cranky pants their way out of there.
0: Right. So after season four, right. which is when the president, uh, that's Jed Bartlett, um, won a second term. That's right. Sam Seaborn, the storyline was he decided to run for a small congressional seat, right? It was because the person who, like, that was when Joshua Joshua Molina's character came in and was campaigning for this dead guy. You are killing me with your recaps today. Oh, my God. Amazing. (laughs) I needed to know. I need people to know. I need people to know that I know this show. Anyway, the dead guy, but they still won the election, and Sam was like, Hey, if you win the election, call me. And they actually won the election. So he, in the story, left the show because his character went off to become a congressman or whatever. So what you're saying is Rob Lowe quit. Yes. Rob Lowe quit. Joshua Molina came in.
1: Right? Right. Exactly. Uh, All this to say, you know, after years after that show, almost 10 years after that show went off the air… And dude says something on Twitter that's More, of, I think. No? Maybe more. Dude says something that's kind of untoward. And, you know, and Bradley Whitford, like, m- cannot suppress the urge <laughs> to drag him. That tells me that there is some deep stuff going on there. And, and I would wager, because you have made me suspicious in my old age, that the personal assistant leak… And the discussion of same may have been a convenient way to transfer the… A redirect. Yes, a redirect to
0: something a little more pleasant. But I mean, if we're going to go boy shit here, we have seen in the past many of the cast members of the West Wing get together. They do promotional videos together. They do campaign videos together. Um, Alice and Janney, Richard Schiff, um, Martin Sheen, Janelle Maloney, Joshua Molina… Bradley Whitford, they've all, Dulé Hill, they all kind of get together and have a little reunion. I don't remember now seeing Rob Lowe participate in that. Do no, you? I don't think, I don't think he's usually invited,
1: or maybe he has other things that he's occupied with, maybe he's taping other shows, you know, but no, no, I don't remember seeing Rob Lowe there. Uh... So, you know, at a certain point, it becomes Occam's razor, and the thing that you think it probably is, is what it probably is.
0: Well, what it probably was is, then you wonder what it was like on those four seasons that he was on the show. And you, I mean, this is where I want your insight. The script gets delivered, right? Yeah. And… They all open the script like, how many scenes do I get this, right? Does it work like that? How many scenes do I get this week? And Yeah, at their level, it's getting delivered to them at
1: home, uh, usually by their personal assistant or, you know, a courier, a show PA or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And then, in theory, you go to work. What happens often is that cranky actors start complaining, I'm not in this much, why am I even showing up for this? Uh, which would maybe be a thing that you could complain about, if the show was functioning, but also, somewhere along the way, Aaron Sorkin lost his ever-loving mind because this is when shows still got 22 episodes. Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, I don't mean to malign anything. If you have not watched those first few seasons of The West Wing, it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. But I will say this, a television hour script is supposed to come in in around 47 pages. There are only two shows that have violated that rule, uh, <laughs> with, with, you know, a few exceptions. Whatever, a 51-page script, fine. It, you know, 53 on The Good Wife, don't email me. But on The West Wing and on The Gilmore Girls, the scripts were coming in at 70 to 75 pages. Fucking Sorkin. The dialogue was <laughs> epic. It dense. It was dense. It was gorgeous. Half of our political ideals that we are watching being broken on a daily basis <laughs> yes. were given to us by fictional president Jed Bartlett, right? So it is a huge script. Aaron Sorkin would have been exceedingly busy and overworked and overtyping. And he was also arguably a weirdo who didn't actually let the other writers write. Uh, So if Rob Lowe was complaining, I imagine it would have fallen on fairly deaf ears because ain't nobody got time to deal with that complaint because they need to get the showrunner to get the next script out from underneath the door.
0: And, uh, you know, if we're relating it, if we can relate it to those of you listening and you don't work in showbiz, this is one way that celebrities on these kinds of shows are quote just like us. Because anytime you have a workplace grievance, oh, she got that great project and I didn't. Oh, he gets to go on this trip and I don't. That's exactly how it boils down when these scripts go out and they like rush to get the script from under the door and they open it up. How many lines do I get? What scene do I get to play? Where am I going? Do I get a love story? Do I get a conflict? Do I have a monologue this week? This is what it is.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, and will be until the end of time. You know, this is why actors get fed up and start writing things for themselves, because they want to be able to control those things. And this is why, you know, when an actor writes something for himself, you're often like, "Mm, did that need to be quite that long? Did that need to be half that long? But this is also where you hear things come out. What kills me? And I know, you know… There are many reasons we could talk about this for a long time, but I will say this. We're talking about personal assistance, and one of the things that is really implicit there is discretion, that that person is not selling stories about their boss to a tabloid, that they are not letting things leak. When you work with people day in and week out and month in and year out, you learn some shit. You know some stories. You know the time that your coworker came to you looking for tampons. Or the time that that one guy's girlfriend broke up with him and you didn't see him for three and a half days and then he smelled. Like, you know these things. What kills me most about this story is that people have dozens of stories, heaps of stories, and they don't always come out. We don't know a lot about what happened on the West Wing, except that one tweet with seven words in it (laughs) told you more than you will
0: ever need to know. More than 58, 70 pages of fucking Sorkin dialogue. Although, to be fair, I steal from the West Wing all the time. I just stole from the West Wing for a recent episode of The Social. What did you you say? Okay, so it's the episode where Bartlett debates Richie. Mm -hmm. One of the best episodes of the whole show. You remember that? Of course. Cutting the tie and whatever. And the moment one of like, Bartlett's killer lines is, if you say that Alaska uh, is taking all this money for Eskimo, remember the word Eskimo was in there? Sorry, I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just quoting the dialogue. And then his punchline is, fine, from the federal government, and the federal government is too big, and the federal government should be involved. Well, then my question to you is this, can we have it back? Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that. So on The Social recently… We were talking about Justin Bieber not wanting to go to the Grammys because he doesn't think the Grammys are relevant. And my point was, well, last year you won a Grammy. Now, if you don't think the Grammys are relevant, here's my question. Are you going to give it back? Um, (laughs) Now, I… Nobody knew on the panel or in the audience that I was fucking stealing from fucking Sorkin. You didn't even just
1: borrow… The words. You <laughs> borrowed the line delivery and the, like, insouciant angle
0: of the head. I did. Fucking Sorkin. Anyway, I steal from Westping all the time, and sometimes, and a lot of time, I also hate Aaron Sorkin. And um, love him because he created it, you know? Correct.
1: This is one of those things, the people that you love and hate at the same time, uh, which I believe is a Drake lyric. So, you know, we really find that these are the ones we come back to over and over and over again. And this week, one of the people we're coming back to is Lena Dunham and the final season of Girls, season six, premiered last night. And I want to know what you think about this. This is the final season premiere and there are already think pieces like three deep on the ground, have been for weeks. And I've had such a an elaborate relationship with this show. And I don't know if that's the same thing as the elaborate relationship that I have with the showrunner. Lena Dunham, of course, was famously 23 when she sold the show and is now much older, uh, six years plus however many uh, hiatuses there have been. So let's call her in her early 30s. That's a vast difference in time. The show is vastly different. And I've really felt that It was questionable in season one. Certainly lots of people felt it was problematic, and there are lots of reasons why. It was, I'm not sure what it was sometimes in the seasons two and three, and it started to find a real Mm -hmm. strong rhythm in season four through five, and I'm really excited about what this last season will be. One of the things I know is it's like jam-packed with stars. Uh, the season premiere has Chelsea Peretti in it, and I know Jasmine Cephas-Jones shows up. Guys, that's Peggy from Hamilton. Hamilton! I haven't said Hamilton on this podcast in weeks, and Yasick didn't even blink. Uh, Matthew Reese, who is, of course, Philip on The Americans, is also on the show. So I am excited about Girls, the final season. What about you? What do you think?
0: I think for me, you are the Girls Specialist. Um, on our team. And for me, when I approach season six, it's season six, right? It is. When I approach season six, tell me if I'm wrong and correct me if I am. The question in my mind is a line that has defined the show for better or for worse. Probably the most controversial line, line of dialogue, and you know what I'm coming to about this show. The voice of a generation. Is that the line? She
1: says, the full line is, I think I might be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice. So she corrects herself right there in the moment. And that is in the pilot
0: of the show. That's right. And so is it fair or unfair to approach season six asking that question? Was this show, did it live up to Or can we forget and take that line off the table? One of the things I think became more
1: and more clear is the separation between Lena Dunham, the writer and director, and Hannah Horvath, the character, became more and more distinct. It became more and more clear that she was mocking these characters that she was writing about, that it was not supposed to be a mirror. Uh, One of the things… Lena Dunham has come under fire a number of times because she says ridiculous things sometimes because she doesn't think about how those things are going to come across. There are people who lie in wait to criticize everything that she says. Uh, and We're friends with some of those people. <laughs> yeah, and I... Hi, l- LB. <laughs> I land somewhere in the middle in that I think some of the things she says are ridiculous. I think that her... Her view of the world, and even of a television show as a 24-year-old, was really limited. Uh, And yet, I think the show has had some interesting things to say, and will have some interesting things to say. I kind of think there's the greatest strength of the show, and then there's the greatest criticism. Uh, And to sort of, we should maybe take them both and then discuss them. The greatest strength of the show has largely focused around women and sexuality, Uh, specifically in that Lena Dunham has not looked in a way that is necessarily traditionally sexually attractive.
0: On television and film.
1: Exactly. The way traditionally sexually attractive, I'm making air quotes, has been portrayed in the traditional mainstream media, and she has over and over again shown her body being naked, being less clothed, you know, worn workout clothing and said, it's okay, it is an act of feminism for me to show my body, for me to show men being attracted to this body. Arguably the most controversial episode is called One Man's Trash and it's this sort of weekend romance between Lena's Hannah and uh, Patrick Watson. Yeah. Who like… I think, plays a doctor. But if not, he just, like, there was a casting call for, like, (laughs) handsome doctor. Uh, And, you know, the criticism is endless. She used to talk about how she would direct without pants on. Again, we get the youth coming in there. Yeah. Uh, And the confusion between the actress and the character. But putting her body and, you know, the bodies of the other characters out there to be viewed and experienced and maybe even fetishized when they are not the sort of traditional model that was on offer is kind of a really bold move. And that goes part and parcel with the way the show talked about sexuality and really uh, kind of iconic sexual scenes circa season three that uh, some of the characters were having. Adam in particular was sort of a bit of a a sexual lightning rod.
0: Well, I mean, here, the word that popped up when you're describing that is that she was naked almost gratuitously. And when we use the word gratuitous and sexual or naked in the same sentence, typically it's applied to people who have porn star bodies, typically in entertainment. It's gratuitous violence. It's gratuitous nudity. It's gratuitous. And then that nudity is a centerfold. Well, gratuitous, you know… The the root of the word is free, right? Like free nudity, unearned, Yes, right? It didn't need to be there. So what I'm saying is is that that gratuitous violence, that gratuitous nudity, more often than not was demonstrated with a certain body type. And her gratuitous nudity, free in the purest sense of the term, but in the pop culture sense and in that descriptive sense, was she was naked all the time, but… Naked because it was almost like, you better start normalizing this. Like, this is normal. We just don't see it gratuitously shown with my body. That's right. And gratuitous on
1: two levels, which is to say, uh, yeah, we don't see it with my body and let's normalize this and let's have it be out there and let's have it be the political statement that it turned out to be. Uh, And also… You know that it is fairly realistic that it is if we're being realistic about the life of a 23-year-old who is underemployed and overambitious in Brooklyn. There's a lot of time spent either uh, having sex or preparing to have the sex that you do not wind up having, or wishing that you were. We're talking about it, or just having no air conditioning, so you're lying around in your underwear. That's
0: right, and I. I go back, and you know what, for some reason, and I think it's because I recently interviewed her, the person who pops up here is Lindy West. And Lindy West, we have read her writing for a long time, big fans here. If you don't know Lindy West, just Google and start reading. Lindy West's book is called Shrill, um, and she's been doing a lot of writing about body positivity and body image. And there was a sentence that really meant a lot to me that she wrote I don't have it in front of me and I didn't memorize it, but I'm going to paraphrase. And she said, and Lindy West by her own description is fat. I don't use the word to describe her. She uses the word to describe herself. She says, being fat and in love and happy in public is a radical act. The word here, we talked about the word gratuitous, and now I'm using the word radical. She used the word radical, you use the word bold. And the reason why you're talking about Lena Dunham's nudity is because it is radical to be so gratuitously nude with a body like Lena Dunham's. I am not judging Lena Dunham's body. I am saying that we don't see Lena Dunham's body gratuitous, gratuitously presented in that form in entertainment very often, which is why it's radical.
1: I want to add an asterisk to that because I think that you could find, you know, a more, uh, air quotes coming up, you know, a more uh, contemporarily attractive, what's the conventionally attractive is the term I'm looking for, actress with a more traditional body who I don't think you would have that same nudity, because I argued that that actress would not be as comfortable with her body. It's not just the act of seeing the body. It's the second part of that Lindy West quote that you said, in love and happy. In public. In public is an act of radical… Is a radical act. Is a radical act. The issue is not just that Lena Dunham showed her body. It's that she was comfortable doing so, that she did it all the time. That she was fine because it was her body. And that's really the root of it. That she was that she was outwardly openly enjoying her own body, that she had the audacity to do so. And that is what is so fascinating. On the flip side? On the flip side, the biggest criticism of girls when it premiered and today uh, is it's whiteness, its homogeneity, the fact that the show that was called Girls and took place in Brooklyn did not represent what Brooklyn looked like, did not have characters of color who had meaningful storylines. Shout out to Jessica Williams in season three, I believe, who worked at GQ briefly with Hannah. Um, And that it did not reflect an accurate picture of girls in their 20s, but instead of upper-class white girls in their 20s. I think all of these, you know, all of these accusations are true. Lena Dunham has said that if she were doing it today, she would cast the show differently. She also says she was trying to tell a story of four people that she knew. And I, to be honest, sometimes lay a little criticism at the feet of the name of the show. The first time I read the script, it was called Untitled Lena Dunham Project. And I think if it had been called Hannah and Her Sisters as a little, you know, Woody Allen nod or Selfish and Broke or whatever, that it would not have had the same reaction.
0: There's something about… Or even these girls.
1: Yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. There's something about calling the show Girls that made it sound like it was going to be universal, like it so- made it sound like it was going to speak to everybody. And that is a really, really high bar to jump, let alone for a first-time showrunner who is 23 years old and has just only made a movie for $50,000 before.
0: You're right. And yes, part of it is the title, part of it is… and she has admitted herself um, it was a narrow worldview that was purported to be a wider worldview.
1: Oh yeah, let's not uh, erase anything here. This is not an accurate picture of Brooklyn. It's not, it is less interesting because it is not diverse. It is less rich because there is only one type of experience being presented, you know. Uh Even the four white characters on the show are all of the same educational extraction and uh, from the same relative levels of wealth. It's that kind of homogenous characterization is so instantly boring to us now that it becomes more glaring more quickly every time we see a project where it's like, they haven't thought about this, they haven't thought about how to make this a more interesting, more exciting world because we want to see different perspectives. Who can still be the same people? They can still be self-absorbed, uptight Brooklynites who all just graduated from Oberlin. Mm -hmm. The idea that all of the uptight, uh, overly ambitious Brooklyn residents who have recently graduated from Oberlin look like Hannah and her friends is where we run into
0: problems. But let me ask you this. As a writer and screenwriter, when you're developing stories and you're working on a show, a world, creating it, you know that line that they always say or you've heard often, write what you know? Yeah, sure. So how does that apply here? I think how that applies
1: here is that, you know… Somebody once said to me, if we're gonna watch a whole movie or a whole show about this person, this person has to be extraordinary. How are they extraordinary? What is extraordinary about them? You know, that's that's fair, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody is going to be uh not everybody is going to be the fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Some people would just be calm and comfortable at their uncle's house. Uh not everybody is uh Aaron Brockovich. So To that end, I think that you always want to think about seeing the person who is on the outside a little bit. Those are the people who tell great stories for us. Obviously, we can always kind of envision characters who look like us, who share physical traits with us. Uh, I'm not saying the reason I have an affection for Anne Hathaway is because (laughs) we have a very similar coloring, but, you know, it's, it's not impossible. I don't think that it is the province of, I want to think about how to phrase this, because I think that, you know, for years and years and years, the only people who were writers were white men. And they wrote stories about mostly white men, sometimes about women, uh, but not that often, really. And so women weren't seen. And yes, To a certain extent, everybody writes from their own experience and writes with their own vision in mind. The issue is not that you shouldn't write with your own world vision in mind, taking care to make it interesting and not boring and remembering that homogenous casts are exhausting and terrible. The issue is getting all the people who are writers of color, who are LGBT writers, who are writers from worlds and creators and artists and musicians from worlds that we don't hear about and see, the issue is getting them to the table so that we have a diverse palette of things to shop from. Lena Dunham should not have the responsibility of representing all of Brooklyn on television. That's too much to put on any one person's shoulders. But if we don't have other productions from other people representing their Brooklyn, representing their world then the responsibility is there. It's inevitably going to to fall short,
0: and that's where we run into problems. Does that make sense? Totally. And you just mentioned Lena Dunham, and it's not her responsibility to write all of Brooklyn. But to be fair to her, what she has learned is that it is her responsibility, or she has a platform, to bring in those different voices into the room. And she's doing that with her imprint, with Lenny. We have seen different voices represented on Lenny from many walks of life.
1: And I believe she has a documentary in the works as well uh, along these same lines.
0: She claims to and has pledged to help other showrunners and other creatives who are of different backgrounds, who have different experiences, who are of different cultures to get to the place where she is, to get them, hopefully, their scripts read, their scripts made. Um, her imprint, Lenny, um, you know, they are now developing books. The first author signed to Lenny is, uh, someone I wrote about a couple weeks ago, uh, Jenny Zhang. Right, of course, yeah. Um, so, to be fair to Lena Dunham, not to say that the criticism against Lena Dunham isn't justified and valid. Well, and against the show, you know, I would
1: expand that to… Uh, the more experienced Judd Apatow and to HBO and that let's not put all the checks and balances on the first timer. Right. When you know better, you do better. Yeah. But uh, absolutely, she appears to be putting her money where her mouth is. Here's my final question. I get the impression that she is somebody that we will see in the entertainment business for many, many years. Is she always going to be girls? You know, uh, Mary Tyler Moore was always, really, the the Mary Tyler Moore show. She was always Mary Richards, right? That was sort of the iconic role. Is Lena Dunham always going to be known for girls, or will she someday be many, many other things?
0: I think that's a question for our listeners. Let us know. Although, I will add to this, she's promised a movie, a girl's movie. (laughs) So she will be Hannah Horvath for the remainder of this final season, and apparently for a feature film. I'm not in a rush for that. (laughs) I don't know who asked for it.
1: But maybe I will be. We'll see.
0: Yeah. We'll get there. Please let it not be as shit as the Sex and the City movie.
1: Okay, but let's also not tar the Sex and the City television program, which was often thoughtful and… Heartfelt and about women creating their own families with each other. And funny. It was funny and sharp. And let us not malign it. And fashion.
0: With the movies. <laughs> yes. And let us not look back on those times. Fine. Uh, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Let us know what you predict will be the future of Lena Dunham and let us know your other thoughts. Um, Who are you casting in that rom com? <laughs> Who you're casting in that rom-com. And thank you again for continuing to support Show Your Work. Always show your work. Talk to us. Bye. Bye.